This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Hassett, an economist who is a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Kevin previously worked at AEI, where he was the head of economic studies, and he recently served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration from 2017 to 2019, and then returned in 2020 after the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak as the senior advisor to head the economic response of the administration uh, to COVID-19. He's also very highly cited in the public finance literature and has written uh, some of the uh, most uh, cited uh, empirical papers on corporate taxation. Welcome, Kevin. It's great to be here, Jeff. So, Kevin, I want to talk a little bit about um, where you grew up. You grew up in Boston, and you're also quite the athlete. How did you first get interested in economics? Yeah, actually, it was outside of Boston by quite a bit. I, I grew up in a town called Greenfield, which is uh, right sort of on the Connecticut River, uh, where Vermont meets New Hampshire, meets Massachusetts, just about. And um, I uh, grew up in a town that was previously great. Uh, it's right uh, next to Turner's Falls, which is the lar- largest uh, drop on the Connecticut River. Uh, it's a serious waterfall, and so it was basically the hydroelectric center of American industry, and there were all these factories that used to be there when they had a huge competitive advantage because they could generate power with the waterfall. Uh, and so, for example, International Paper's uh, first factory was in Turner's Falls, you know, and, and there's this really famous tool company, the Greenfield Tap and Die. So we had hydropower that made the economy great in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, and I grew up in a place where it was basically a ghost town. Um, all the factories had closed. Uh, everybody was distressed uh, community, a distressed community type person, the kind of person that maybe uh, Case and Deaton would write about, uh, and you know, about like what happens when a factory closes. And and so so I sort of grew up um, wondering like what happened to my town, like what why is it that it went from being like the center of the economic universe for the U.S. to being a ghost town. And as a metric of the ghost town, by the way, um, the uh, Turner's Falls actual uh, burnout factories were used as a set, like they brought in cameras and everything for the video game Fallout. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, so you can imagine, like, when you're growing up and you're seeing this stuff and you're watching, you know, your sister's friends graduate high school and not get a job and so on. And then when I went off... To college, I was just like super curious about economics, and then I found when I took the classes at Swarthmore that the professors were really wonderful. A guy like Mark Cooperberg is uh, a macroeconomist, Bernie Safran, who was wrote the sort of ending column in the Journal of Economic Perspectives about like what kids should, what people should read uh, that's interesting this month at the very dawn of that journal, and, and and so I was surrounded by incredibly talented economists. And it really lit a fire under me. And so I went, I'm one of those people that like don't exist anymore. I went straight to grad school. So right when I graduated from sophomore, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. Um, it's amazing that you've seen um, the China shock and, and the effects of automation up close in your own hometown. So you were, uh, after graduating uh, from Penn, uh, where you were an Auer, Alan Auerbach student, uh, you were faculty at Columbia. You worked at uh, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Um, you led um, economic studies at AEI, and you're also chair of the Board of Academic Advisors at uh, the Economic Innovation Group, or EIG, where you helped conceive the idea of opportunity zones, uh, something that uh, would later be written into law in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was passed while you were there. Um, I, I want to get a, a little bit, um, while you were um, a, a CEA chair uh, under the, uh, in the uh, early Trump years, um, I'm curious, like, Let's get into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a bit. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, what it was like, um, the, the conception uh, of it? Um, you know, it notably, it cut the corporate tax rate uh, from 35% to 21%. Some of your most well-cited work um, analyzes the impact of corporate tax rates on investment. Um, how did the whole, uh, how did TICJA come together and what do you think its legacy is here now five years out. Sure. Well, basically, what happened was that we had a uh, 
you know, a group that included at the time Gary Cohn and Steven Mnuchin and myself and Mick Mulvaney um, were the main sort of economic team in the White House at that time. And, um, you know, we put together uh, working groups to develop ideas and to model what if we do this, what if we do that, uh, presented the president with options and uh, then began negotiations with people on the Hill and we could sort of say we want this and this and they would say, well, you can't have that, but what about this thing? And, and the negotiations were pretty complex. Uh, like in order to get Marco Rubio's vote, we had to expand the child credit probably more than we wanted to at the beginning and so on. But, but the thing evolved in you know, the political arena, but it began with a lot of you know, careful study. And as you mentioned, that a big chunk of the study was on the impact of the corporate tax uh, cuts that we were advocating and the impact of, especially of those tax cuts on American workers, which is a literature that I think really kind of began with a paper that Aparna Matter and I wrote a while ago that showed that corporate tax cuts help blue collar workers. And um, President Trump actually really embraced uh, uh, the result from our paper, which was that uh, corporate tax cuts uh, lift blue collar wages quite a bit. And um, we did a lit review at the CEA uh, when um, we put out you know, our estimates of what would happen if we passed the tax cuts that said that the uh, typical wage would go up in three to five years by four to $8,000. And President Trump, uh, at this point, uh, at least there's one time in his life where he was being cautious, he said, let's not take the high number, let's take the low number. And he went out, and you might remember that the, the $4,000 improvement in wages was like one of the main points, selling points that he cited over and over in speeches. And um, it was attacked, you know, by a lot of people who uh, thought the effect seemed too large, but hadn't actually read the literature to see that it was an empirically based thing. A lot of false things were said. You know, one uh, left uh, wing economist said that we are only citing papers that weren't peer reviewed. And then we went back and like put a star next to the peer reviewed papers. And I think there were like a dozen of them or something like that that had the effect. And, and so anyway, but uh, if you go back and look at what happened afterwards, you know, we basically had, you know, two... Uh, presidents uh, Bush and Obama, where they, there really was almost no wage growth whatsoever over that entire period. And um, the wage that we targeted and did the $4,000 estimate uh, for uh, increased by a little more than $6,000 up until right before COVID. And then if you even look when President Trump left office, then uh, the increase even after the COVID recession was north of 4000 And so I think the tax cuts worked about the way that we expected. Um, there was a big increase in the ratio of investment to capital stock, uh, and uh, that fed through to productivity and wages, just the way economic theory would say, would say it would. Um, critics in, in the oh, empirical yeah. evidence from what you wrote in the early 90s, as well with Jason Cummins and, and Glenn Humber looking at past mm-hmm. tax reforms prior to that. Right. So it's very, very similar to the response of previous uh, uh, tax cuts or the economy to previous tax cuts. And so, so again, um, there was an old literature that I participated in, which we can talk about if you'd like. And then there's a modern literature where people uh, use a narrative approach to find the effect of tax cuts on the economy, a narrative approach. Like the Roman it, Roman yeah, yeah. The, the way to think about a narrative approach is the, this goes back to like my dissertation even um, that when I started studying corporate taxes when I was in grad school, then everybody believed that the cost of capital, which is the channel through which taxes affect corporate investment, had no effect. Everybody thought the estimate of the effect of the cost of capital was zero. Uh, and, um, you know, the Brookings papers were filled with papers that documented that that was true. But when I looked at what they were doing, it struck me that what they're doing is fundamentally wrong because um, what happened in post-war history, beginning with John F. Kennedy, who was a really underappreciated, brilliant supply-side uh, president, by the way. But what well, happened Larry, Larry was... Larry Kudlow wrote a whole book, uh, uh, I think JFK and the Reagan Revolution, I think it's true. That's right. They're very, they, that's right. And, and uh, the point is just that, that he introduced the investment tax credit back then, which sort of became accelerated dis- depreciation or expensing. And so, and he, what, cut, and he cut the top rate too. And he like cut the 90%, top rate. Seventy percent uh, until Reagan cut it again. And uh, I think there's another book, JFK Conservative, too. Uh, yeah, he was he was a great man and a terrible loss for our country. And and so, so anyway, so so that uh, what would happen would be that we'd have a recession. 
And then people would uh, basically, you know, take a play out of the, the JFK playbook and say, well, we should have an investment tax credit. And then we'd get out of the recession and then they'd say, well, we don't need it anymore. Uh, and so what would happen would be in recessions, we actually had tax policy that stimulates investment. And outside of recessions, we had tax policy that doesn't add extra to investment. And then if you take, if you're like, you know, naive 1970s macroeconomist writing for the Brookings papers, then you just run the regression. You just correlate tax policy and investment and you find that you get the wrong sign that investment tends to go up. Uh, in times, because investment goes up if there's a general economic boom and goes down in a recession, it, it tends to go up in times when there's no tax subsidy for it. Uh, and that was uh, the puzzle that I sort of set myself with my co-authors uh, when I was in graduate school. Is like, how do we solve that? And what we did back then is that we uh, decided that that sort of endogeneity policy, the fact that it was responding to recessions, surely is like a big effect for the aggregate number, uh, but uh, there's a different cost of capital for every type of asset that depends on its asset life and depreciation rules and so on. And so the cost of capital for a car will be different than the cost of capital for, you know, a power plant. Uh, and that, you know, our identifying assumption um, was basically that the, the cross-section difference in the effect of a tax reform on this asset versus that asset, that asset was like too mathematical for it to be endogenous because the politicians surely wouldn't understand, you know, what, what effect they were having through all the formulas that Alan Auerbach and I derived. Uh, and so therefore we could actually look at the correlation and it would be meaningful. And when we did that in a series of papers that have now been cited a whole bunch of times, we found that the effect of the cost of capital on investment was about what um, you know the basic fundamental economic theory uh, model of the Cobb-Douglas production function would would predict, uh, and uh, that was that literature. Subsequently, Ricardo Caballero at MIT tried it a different way, found about the same effect. Uh, but then there was this really innovative literature by Christie and David Romer, started by them, but then. Um, absolutely, you know, expanded into numerous papers by authors from all over the world, where they basically said, well, uh, one way to tell whether something is like an endogenous policy or exogenous policy is to look at the floor debate and what does Congress think they're doing. And so if you pass a tax cut and then everybody's saying we need to do this because we're entering a recession, then you would call that an endogenous policy. But if they're passing a tax cut because you know, somebody just ran for president arguing for tax reform or something, then maybe that's an exogenous policy. And they find that when they look only at the exogenous variation, so they're fixing this effect that I noticed uh, when I was in grad school, then they get about the same estimates that we got. And so so I think that when you've got like replication, like Caballero doing it a different way, and then the modern narrative approach doing it a different way, and so you do something lots of different ways that each have a plausible story behind them and you get the same answer, then you should start to have a great deal of confidence in that answer as a scientist. And for me, like the disappointment of uh, the economic debate at that time is that so much of the economics profession is just, you know, basically a pure partisan democratic profession now, uh, that even though the literature quite decisively said that the effects would have, that the effects would be what CEA was reporting that, that we're being attacked, you know, in an ad hominem fashion often by economists from all over the country who hadn't clearly read the literature. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a, a disappointment for me because I think that, um, you know, it's really important for economists to read the literature and then give an honest take. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, there are papers in the last four or five years in the very top journals, the American Economic Review and the Quarterly Journal of Economics and so on, that confirm, you know, our results from way back when, and that we were actually citing papers from the top journals and then being accused of being unprofessional and so on, you know, suggests that, that our profession runs the risk of, you know, going off the rails the way the rest of society has and becoming like divorced from science and unconnected to data. Mm -hmm. And, it, and it's just so uh, fascinating. You were there at the very beginning of the credibility revolution. Um, you know, your papers with uh, Glenn Hubbard and, and Jason Cummins looking at tax reforms as natural experiments and looking at the effects um, on investment um, and, and sort of testing this hypothesis about Q theory of investment. Um, that was 
written even before the you know Carden Kruger um, you know famous minimum wage paper. I, you know I think it was around that same time. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know it's um, uh, it's it's fantastic work, and and I, I certainly uh, have my own biases toward uh, uh, well identified uh, studies, but uh, I, I feel like um, that was. Um, very, very early in this, um, was since been, you know, a tidal wave of a complete change in the profession from um, sort of uh, not well identified uh, theory and empirical work, um, certainly in, in macro and, and in public finance, to um, a field now, and, you know, labor economics and, and public finance are, you know, almost entirely, you know, heavily uh, well identified applied micro fields. And I think this, uh, you helped um, set that uh, uh, and, and thank you. And, 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 and I would actually like to bring in another paper, too, that I wrote with Jason Cummins and Steve Ulner that is a completely different story, but I think that it highlights sort of the evolution that you're talking about. Uh, and there's another case that I think is a nice example for people in graduate school who are thinking about, like, how do I come up with an idea of a paper? And then, and then so, so basically, uh, if you look at a paper, then wonder why the result exists, uh, then um, the thing that made me go into the natural experiment uh, paper and develop natural experiments uh, was that, that ultimately in the, in the, a prior belief that could be wrong, that the, uh, the responsiveness to tax policy for companies can't be zero. And the reason I thought this was actually that um, I think that like for human beings uh, that you, know, you could have a tax policy that does this or that to our labor income and then we could respond to it, you know, the way homo economicus would, the way a purely rational, economically trained person would, or we could respond to it the way a mentally ill person does, or somewhere in between, and there's nothing that's going to make us not exist anymore. And so humans, I sort of came into it with a thing, almost like a belief that I'm never going to study consumption behavior because I don't, I don't necessarily know that economics is going to be helpful for understanding what people do because people aren't, like, put out of business if they don't do the right thing. But a business, uh, suppose you have two businesses, one that responds rationally to tax policy the way economic, economists model it and the other one that doesn't, then the one that doesn't should be run out of business. And so if we're looking at businesses, then it ought to be that sort of Darwinian forces make it so that they act in response to the tax cuts the way I sort of believed that they did. And so I started to wonder, well, if it's not zero, what are they getting wrong? And that's where we got the story that you and I just said. But there was another one of those uh, that uh, basically uh, became a, a paper, it was published peer-reviewed paper in the American Economic Review that's also been, I think, maybe even more influential than that paper that was co-authored with uh, Jason Cummins and Steve Older. And, and it was very much related because one of the things that people did, in addition to looking at tax policy, is that they looked at um, Tobin's Q. Uh, and, and Tobin's Q, uh, for those who haven't studied it, is just... Uh, if you take the market value of the firm and divide it by what it would cost to rebuild the firm, uh, then if the market value, as in like what it's worth if you like could buy it in the stock market, is way above what it would cost to build such a firm, then you then somebody could come in and replicate that. Uh, you know, so suppose that the, the a firm you could you could buy a hot dog stand for a dollar, but you could sell it on the market for two dollars. Then you would buy hot dog stands and sell them until. You, know, you basically got so that the market price was equal to what it cost to buy a hot dog stand, right? And so to get back to a market price, have to be driven down to a dollar. The way that would happen is you'd have a lot more hot dog stands. The hot dog salesmen would be, you know, competing with each other. Their profits would go down, and, and so on. So that's the Tobin's Q model. Well, well, at the same time, when I finished the cost of capital thing, and I like really understood that, okay, now I think the cost of capital mattered. And by the way, it's incredibly controversial at the time. It took an enormous amount of abuse from other academics who are, you know, we could talk about that as well, that they really invested in the old way of doing things. So in this case, I'm thinking, okay, well, if the cost of capital matters the way I say it, so firms are responding rationally to that, well, there's this other end of the literature, completely different thing, where uh, people look at the effect of Tobin's Q on investment. And we just talked about how why it should have an effect. If Tobin's Q is way bigger than one, then there ought to be more investment. Um, and yet they were finding zero coefficients on Tobin's Q, and why is that? And um, then I looked at it and basically decided that there's a problem with the measure that people were using for Tobin's Q, which is just that uh, the stock market has a lot of noise, right? In fact, you know, Bob Schiller won the Nobel Prize for talking about how there's like excess volatility in stock markets. 
because uh, they respond to things other than fundamentals. They could get panicked today about maybe the risk of a new bank failure and so on. And then all of a sudden everybody goes down 5% and then they go up 5%. And so if you try to predict like the investment behavior of a typical company with the stock market, which is fluctuating wildly, then um, unless investment behavior of companies like their property, plant and equipment investment fluctuates wildly, then you're going to find that the Tobin's Q has no effect. Um, and so what we did in, in the paper was we say, okay, so so we got to come up with a way to, you know, basically sift out the measurement error fluctuation in um, the stock market and then estimate the impact of Tobin's Q, um, you know, basically controlling for that. And we got a very clever idea, which actually was kind of given to me in an econometrics class when I was in grad school by a brilliant econometrician named Robin Sickles. Uh, and the idea was that uh, the stock market value of the firm is basically the uh, present value, a discounted present value of how much money we think that they're going to be able to pay shareholders in the future, present discounted value of dividends, um, which is related in a way to the present discounted value of earnings um, or profits that they make, because in the end they're going to pay the profits out to shareholders. Uh, and, and so that that's the thing that the market is supposed to be estimating. And our idea was, well, we have all these analysts uh, that follow stocks, and then they tell you what their future earnings are going to be. And they give you a great deal of detail. They give you like the next five year of earnings, and then they tell you what the long run growth is. And so you can estimate the present value of earnings uh, or, or dividends, really, uh, for firms based on what analysts say. And then you, you actually observe the expectation. So you don't have to do any fancy rational expectations econometrics because you have like the expected future profits, which is what should affect investment. And we found that when we did that, uh, this is the really cool thing, um, that not only did we find like a Q effect that was like far away from zero, but it was almost exactly the same effect we got from looking at the natural experiments for tax cuts. And so then once again, you know, I became very, very convinced that, okay, so we're doing it a different way. So we've talked about two other different ways. Now we've got another one where we did it with Tobin's Q and we also found that it worked for that. Uh, and so, you know, I'm highly confident that um, the analysis that we put in to designing the corporate tax cuts and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was based on an enormous amount of very careful science that's been peer reviewed and widely cited. And, um, you know, I'm not surprised that what we saw in the data afterwards was exactly what we predicted because it was based on so much hard evidence. The one last thing I'll say without filibustering is that there are people who say that the investment effect um, didn't happen. Um, you've seen that. And um, so maybe some of our listeners have been exposed to those arguments. And I just want to um, respond to that. It just anticipate that someone might be saying that if we were here taking questions. That um, basically what happened was that, uh, and this was actually my doing, uh, because I had been studying all these other tax reforms, that there's a problem that if I say, okay, I'm going to um, have an investment tax credit in January and it's October, then what can happen would be everybody's like, okay, well, I'm going to wait till January to invest. So I get, the, I get like a big tax credit if I do it in January. Right now I get nothing. And so um, what you need to do when there's an uncertain tax policy that might happen in order to not kick your economy potentially into recession because everybody waits to see is you need to say, okay, well, if we have like, you know, expensing, which is like an investment tax credit, then it'll be retroactive to today, the day that we announce here's our bill. Uh, and so therefore there's no reason for you to wait till January when the new tax law might come in and so you're not doing some kind of weird massive distortion. Um, and so, so one of the things that happened though is that, the, uh, the, the, we made the expensing retroactive to October um, or maybe September, I forget which month. And, and, but the, the corporate tax rate reduction, which was, uh, you know, at the time originally a proposal was a 20% rate reduction, was not uh, backdated to the first time we announced it. And so everybody expected uh, especially once the bill is passed, that the uh, corporate tax rate would drop quite a bit uh, in January. Um, and so the thing then is that if you buy a machine and you expense it, then the value of that expense is you subtract it from your profits before you pay tax. And so if the tax rate is 35%, which it was, then if I buy a dollar machine, then I get 35 cents of a tax benefit. 
Uh, but if the tax rate is 21% and I spend a dollar on a machine, then I only get 21 cent tax benefit. And so we have this quarter where people got a much bigger tax benefit actually before the tax cuts technically happened because they were looking backward and the rate was coming That's in January. And, and, and so what happened in the fourth quarter uh, right after the tax cuts passed is there's this incredible investment boom um, because of this, because people saw that they had like a timing advantage to whack it into the fourth quarter while they could deduct it at 35 instead of 21. And so you got this big surge in investment and then it stayed, I thought it was going to go down in the first quarter and then we're going to have all these news stories about how our tax cuts failed because of, because of the news, newspapers, this is too complicated an effect for the guys who cover the economy. And, and, and so I thought for sure that was going to happen, but actually they, it stayed high. And in the models that, that Alan Auerbach and I developed a long, long time ago about like how to think about the effect of taxes on investment, that what happens is the level of investment jumps and so you get much more investment than you need to offset depreciation of existing capital. And then the capital stock gradually grows up uh, to be consistent with the new level investment and for the investment to capital ratio equal to depreciation. And so investment jumps and then it stays there is what the model says should happen. And so what happened was that in the fourth quarter, we got the investment jump and then it kind of stayed there and grew a little bit from there. But because the jump was in the fourth quarter, you see a lot of like partisan uh, democratic economists say that there wasn't an investment effect because they treat um, the control group, they add the fourth quarter to the control group and say, well, let's look before and after the tax cuts and then they date the tax cuts, you know, inaccurately to January 1. And so, so that's, but the argument I've seen that the tax cuts didn't have an effect, which I've even seen, by the way, at places you wouldn't expect, like the American Enterprise Institute, which used to actually, you know, care about free enterprise as far as I can tell. But, but, but at these places that they, they tend to make mistakes like that, like to do the control group inaccurately. Fascinating, and, and I mean, it's, it's so interesting to hear just about all the evidence that sort of goes into um, you know, showing you know, the effects of uh, you know, corporate tax reductions on, on investment and you know, talking about the narrative approach and talking about uh, the Tobin's Q and, and uh, user cost of capital and using past tax reforms as natural experiments, all, all early part of the you know, credibility revolution, and, and you were you know, a key part of that. And, it's amazing, and I think very few um, scholars, I think, get to um, both uh, write seminal work uh, in you know, some field, um, like you have in public finance, and actually gone into policy and implemented that. You know, thinking about like Ben Bernanke, for example, who just won the Nobel Prize this past year, you know, wrote a lot about you know, uh, depressions and you know, the Great Depression, and um, a lot about um, uh, you know, the, uh, finance and the macroeconomy, and he certainly... Uh, was there to uh, apply a lot of his academic uh, wisdom as, as Fed chair. So I, th I think it's uh, almost um, analogous in the case of uh, public finance um, with your career. I want to talk a little bit about some of the other aspects of TICJA or the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, which was passed um, just at the end of the first year of the uh, Trump administration when you were uh, chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. What do you think the legacy is so far of Opportunity Zones? Um, you know, we saw a lot of other things in uh, in the, the legislation as well, there are some changes in personal uh, tax rates, some changes in uh, capping the mortgage interest deduction. Um, but I think opportunity zones were one of those things that was really new and, and certainly something that you had helped conceive um, well before um, certainly uh, tax reform was being considered and, and um, before um, we even sort of knew Trump was president when uh, the economic innovation group was first conceived. Um, but I'm curious, you know, Looking sort of five years on here, what, what do you think about um, the state of opportunity zones? Yeah, so, so uh, you know, Jared Bernstein and I, uh, way back in the day, wrote the first paper on opportunity zones. It was published by the Economic Innovation Group. And um, Jared Bernstein, who's now, who's now the, uh, the nominated chair, new for, chair of yeah. the, or soon to be the new chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under the Biden administration. And, and a genuinely, you know, authentically good person uh, who I disagree with on some policies, obviously agree with him on others like opportunity zones. But he and I are viewed, you know, that there, there's a Ph.D. Uh, candidate uh, right now uh, named Harrison Wheeler at uh, University of California, Berkeley, that has a paper on opportunity zones. And in the, in the beginning, he basically says that Jared and I invented it, and it's sort of pretty much true as an academic matter, although uh, 
we had other friends that were helping us think about what to do. But but the, the original thought was based on game theory, and I know we want to talk a little bit about the debt limit struggle at the end of this. And there's a lot of game theory there too, but I spent a lot of time playing with game theory, but didn't find a lot of applications for it, um, really until the Opportunity Zone paper. But uh, they had, uh, in the past, uh, Jack Kemp pushed the idea of like an enterprise zone. And Interesting. the idea was that if you had like a tax benefit for putting a business in a um, distressed community, then maybe you could get businesses to do that. And, and he, you know, Jack Kemp was absolutely, you know, beloved in the African-American community because he obviously, like he, he made the number one focus of like helping underprivileged folks or, you know, people who are discriminated against with economic policy. And, and, but the enterprise zones uh, didn't really work. And, and so it's very similar to like, well, wait a minute, it seems like they ought to work. Uh, and so is first, is the evidence wrong? And then you look at the evidence and then oh, the evidence looked right. They really didn't work. And so, and, and, and so, so I didn't have a, I didn't have like a, like I did with the Tax Cuts of Jobs Act, an opportunity to say, oh, they just got the econometrics wrong. They actually do work. But no, the enterprise zones really didn't work. Now what, um, opportunity zones, like, how are, are they different in like, so, so the idea is that it's essentially a, a tax break for um, real estate developers if they develop. Or not real estate for, developers, anybody. For anybody who invests. You and I want to start estate. a brewery. I know we talk about that a lot. <laughs> Given our beer consumption, we Absolutely. could probably fund it ourselves. Uh, but as yeah. long as that is built in, that brewery or, or real estate construction project occurs in one of these lower income uh, right. zones. Yeah, so, so, so basically the, the idea is that... Um, that when I invest or when you invest, for the most part, you know, what I do is I like put my money in like Vanguard and index funds and things like that because I'm an economist, that's what economists do. And, and, and so, but the way to think about like the way a typical human being who wants to invest invests is that they give their money to a professional firm or use a private equity firm or a mutual fund company or something and then they go out and invest. And so, uh, Jared and I decided that the problem with the sort of old-fashioned approach to this was that you could like put a tire store in Anacostia in DC and get an enterprise credit. But then like you got a tire store and then you know what are you going to do and, and if you sold the tire store and then didn't like put the money in a, in a gas station in Anacostia then you'd have to give the tax credit back in some cases and so on. And, and so it's very like illiquid. And so the first thought that we had was that what we need to do is make it so that I can put my money in a fund, like the Vanguard Index 500, but not that, but like a private equity fund that invests in distressed communities. And that the uh, fund can build a business in Anacostia and then sell it and then build a business in Camden, New Jersey, and then sell it and then go to North Philadelphia and build it and then sell it. And it's not a taxable event until I take my money out of the fund. Uh, and that was like the key idea is that you have like qualifying investments, which are investments in distressed communities, and that uh, you have qualifying funds, uh, which basically do the qualifying investments. And the, the incentive is for individuals to put their money in, in the funds and then for the funds to go around and invest. And it, and it like radically reduces the complexity of encouraging uh, the flow of capital to distressed communities. And so, so we had the view that that could uh, be a game changer because if you look at like poor places versus rich places, the big reason poor places are poor is that they don't have enough capital. And if we could get capital to flow to these places, then we could potentially really change a whole bunch of lives of the most distressed people in America. And, and so that's that was the idea of opportunity zones. And, and the, I said game theory before I referred to it is that I, I think the problem with like the enterprise zone is that it had a bad equilibrium where uh, where what happened is that uh, I was thinking about putting a tire factory at Anacostia. But I would really, if I was the only one who did it, then it would still be such a distressed community that I'd have all sorts of problems with crime. And I just, you know, and so I would really want to do that if you would want to do it too. But then if you look at like how treacherous the incentives were, and sometimes, for example, you had to, the workers who worked in your tire factory had to be in the distressed community too. And so like if one of your workers moved, you know, across uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to over near 
RFK Stadium and get outside of the distressed community, then you would lose your tax credit. You know, so there was all this kind of stuff. And so there was like a bad equilibrium where I didn't go because I kind of knew you weren't going to go. Uh, and, and what we wanted to do is create a positive equilibrium where everybody's going because everybody knows everybody else is going to go. And to do that, we thought that this fund structure would do that. And it's really proven to be true. And I think the best paper on this is this paper by Harrison Wheeler. It hasn't gone through peer review yet uh, because you have to understand the data is very, very new. The opportunity zones weren't really finalized until almost 2020. And so that we need you know, data through probably 2024 or 25 to really do science. Uh, although I got to say that, that what Wheeler's done is really impressive. What, what he did is he went around and you know basically said, well, we can't really look for effects necessarily on like employment yet necessarily because if you're going to build a if we're, you and I are going to put a brewery in some place, we got to get all the permits, we got to build the building, and you know the and, and, home prices to some degree, I, I guess. I, I know there was some very early work that was done, I think by. Uh, Ed Glazier and David Wessel have found that there there weren't any home prices, home price increases in opportunity zone areas, but only looking one year out, I think. Or, and or probably a year out. before they were even in effect. And so, so, which is another thing we'll talk about Wessel and, and the sort of extremely, like I would say, um, idiosyncratic uh, anti-opportunity zone sentiment amongst America's left, where they're basically like dying to show they don't work. It's so much so that there are all these people that have written premature papers saying they don't and then had strong conclusions based on incomplete data. But but the point is just that if you look at permit activity where we can get data that's really almost real time, uh, then you know, we find really big effects of these. If you also like the funds themselves report how much money they've raised and, and you know, I think this year it's pretty likely we're gonna cross a hundred billion dollars has been raised to invest in America's distressed communities. And so if you're a social justice warrior, inequality dude, um, I'm kind of a Rawlsy and I care most about people at the bottom, which is why I work so hard on opportunity zones. You say, where did that come from? Well, it's because I grew up in the place that was like used for the set for Fallout, the video game of post-apocalyptic America. And, and so I really, you know, care about this. China, uh, China shock. And, it wasn't uh, the China shock that killed us. It was like, the, it was electricity spreading. So you didn't need so to have a waterfall or, or electricity. Like they, they had an electricity advantage because of the waterfall, the hydro, hydro power. So technological disruption. Technological disruption is, is what like sort of really harm, harmed our community. But, but yeah, so, so I think that in the permitting activity, you know, you could see big effects. You could see that. Like already, I think there's 50 billion uh, heading towards distressed communities, and it's I think climbing to about 100 billion this year is an estimate, you know, whisper estimate that I have. And, and so we're starting to get evidence that a massive amount of capital went there. And the thing I got to say is that um, if capital goes to a distressed community, um, it wasn't going to go there. It, like if you actually look, the whole problem is that they, these places are starved of capital. So if we can identify that, that much capital is going to the community, that if you're going to say that it has no effect then you know you've got to have a pretty complicated story for why first why would smart investors do it if it's not going to have a positive return which requires basically that you improve those neighborhoods and then why how is it that you can you know go to places where you know the marginal product of capital as we economists call it should be pretty high because there's not a lot of capital and then you send you know 50 billion in capital to these places and then it doesn't have an effect you know that like you as soon as you're Finding a result like that, you gotta, you gotta, if you're an honest scientist, start to wonder, oh, geez, why is it that that doesn't have an effect? It seems that's so contrary to what I would expect. But the thing is that uh, I think I know why people like Wessel do it, uh, and I don't have a very high regard for his book. Uh, it, it is that um, Trump did it. Uh, it was part of Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because it turns out that Trump really did care. A lot about distressed communities and and you know basically giving people a second chance, letting people out of prison, uh, sending capital to distressed communities. That he did a lot of stuff that normally people on the left would embrace. But since he did it and he's such a controversial character, then they just have to hate it because he did it. And and if you look at the things that Trump did that Biden has reversed, it's kind of like if Trump did it, they've reversed it. And so I think that these troubled political times that we're in have had a big effect on the opinions of people who should try to return to being scientists and scholars and stop being partisans. So, and I think the opportunity zone space is, is one of those spaces. Now, now, but that being said, as I said before, it's like 2024 probably before we have enough data so that we can form firm conclusions given that these things are relatively new and given that 
uh, if you go to a distressed community, there aren't a lot of, for example, buildings that are going to allow you to build a business. And so you're going to have to knock stuff down and put stuff up and get the permits and so on. And, and, and so it's, it could be they don't work. You know, there, there's like now I think evidence that suggests like the permit data that, that they are having an effect and, and also just the, the data that just adds up how much money is in, in the funds. Um, but maybe it ends up not having a big positive effect on the lives of these people. But if that's true, though, um, I would say, and this is the thing that, um, I, I don't know, it, it, it's something that one should consider when one looks at the vehemence of the critics. The intent of the policy is to go to the places in America with the most distress, where if you're a kid born there, you know, Raj Chetty has shown us that you've got a very low likelihood of achieving the American dream. And to fix those places, to help those places by sending, you know, much needed capital and jobs and so to those places. The Joint Tax Committee estimated that this, uh, the total cost of, of opportunity zones would be one and a half billion dollars over 10 years for taxpayers. So imagine if I told you for one and a half billion of uh, taxpayer dollars over 10 years, um, I can get you 50 billion in capital flowing to distressed communities. Would you take the trade? Uh, and like who would? Um, and so the, these people who are indignant and angry about opportunity zones, you know, need to get over it and need to get a life because, you know, it, it's an attempt to help the people who are most in need in our, in our country. And, and if they don't work, then we should make another attempt, not condemn the attempt. Those are uh, excellent points on uh, you know, helping those uh, least among us, um, which I think the, uh, you know, certainly the intention of, uh, of opportunity zones. I want to... Fast forward just a little bit to, to COVID and the Trump administration's response to COVID. So you uh, left uh, the White House in 2019 uh, after you finished two years as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. But then you returned in 2020, right after COVID uh, had started or sort of reached the U.S. and, and sort of was spreading like crazy. And you joined the White House as a senior advisor to head the economic response to COVID. Um, and you know, that included a lot of things like you know, scrambling to pass these coronavirus uh, relief bills, um, the CARES Act, which is for the broader um, economic uh, support uh, relief that was um, uh, passed. Uh, that included a lot of things like you know, these economic impact payments, you know, a couple thousand dollars stimulus checks. I was running the team that moved ventilators. You know, I, I mean, anything that was data driven that wasn't, you know, involved in, um, you know, basically epidemiology. So like we weren't in any way like guiding Tony Fauci, um, but anything that like influenced like moving ventilators to here or there, anything that was really data dependent, um, our, our team. What, you know, working with Palantir, actually, we built a massive data operation to manage that. Wow. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I didn't intend to do this. It's not like, you know, that I've always had the ambition of there being a national emergency and me being in the White House. In fact, I was in the outback in Australia and got a call from the White House. Uh, President Jared decided that, Jared Kushner, Jared Kushner that, that because we had worked so well together when I was at the CEA, and it was such a national emergency, they asked me if I would drop everything I was doing and come back. So the Outback Australia. I was in the Outback in Australia, yeah. You got a call. I got a call, yeah. And, 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 and I flew back from the Outback uh, and uh, went right to the White House and started right away. It was yeah, March 2020. It, it was March in 2020, early March, yeah. And um, yeah, it was a very, very difficult time, but I think that we made a lot of under extreme distress really right we made a lot of good calls and and jason Furman had a really interesting tweet and he's really upped his game lately in the sense that i got to say that, that his uh, analysis is really always worth looking at um and sometimes worth agreeing with but always very thoughtful uh and and, and he basically said you know if actually look at gdp what we forecasted gdp uh, for gdp today uh before covid that we've kind of returned to the trend and so we had the biggest drop since the Great Depression in GDP, and we've returned to the trend. Now, granted, we've got a lot of problems going forward, like the debt, which you and I will talk about a little before we're done. Um, and that was financed, debt financed, in a way that was necessary, given that we shut the economy down. But the economic policies, that if you had told me 
when I did the first estimate that GDP growth in the second quarter was going to be minus 32%. You can remember me saying that on TV before the number came out because it was based on a lot of math. I was terrified that that was going to cause a financial panic and a Great Depression. And the fact that we were able to go from there to we're back on trend, here we are just a little bit later, I think is one of the great economic policy accomplishments in economic history. And I can finally say, too, that it's one that um, is nonpartisan, that uh, Ron Wyden at Senate Finance and his staff worked really closely with us at the White House to make sure that we had like thought carefully about the emergency and what the right economic response to it would be. And then that there was bipartisan support that I think that I don't think that a single Democrat or Republican voted against this thing. So imagine President Trump's a pretty controversial guy. I guess that's not a controversial statement. And he's even getting impeached. And he passes all these stimulus bills with, you know, 100% support from Democrats. And it was because uh, basically Democrats and Republicans and the emergency worked well together. And the credit for getting back to trend is, is not just, you know, ours from our team, but, but really everybody. And um, that, I think, is, like, again, one of the great economic policy accomplishments of our lifetimes, that we could turn off the economy, have a minus 32% quarter, and then not have the whole thing unwind. Well, in, I suppose, like, one other question here. Um, so, like, we have, you know, in this period, we have this massive relief. You know, we had, um, first, this massive pandemic, which sort of stopped the world in, in many respects. Um, we had a, a significant drop in GDP uh, in the U.S. and in many countries around the world. Uh, in fact, most um, in the um, first few quarters of 2020. Um, and then, uh, you know, there was this significant surge of stimulus that occurred, um, or, or relief, um, depending on how you sort of look at it. Um, in the U.S., that amounted to things like um, very generous unemployment insurance. Um, things like the Paycheck Protection uh, Program, PPP, which were uh, for forgivable loans to businesses, uh, ideally smaller businesses. Um, there were uh, the seamless checks that we mentioned, um, this whole gamut of seamless, and then there were sort of successive iterations of different bills that would either um, send more checks or fill up PPP or, or, um, or in the case of sort of the more recent sort of Biden administration, um, things like um, the ARP, for example, which um, also sort of gave $200 billion to you know, public pension funds. Um, and certainly, um, you know, there's been a lot uh, with um, also uh, on the environmental side with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and, and um, producing uh, or creating uh, electric vehicle tax credits. So I'm curious, like just with all this uh, seamless that has occurred and the return of inflation, we've seen inflation in the U.S. peak at around 8%. Um, it's fallen uh, to around 5% now. This is just a headline measure. And, and we're starting to see inflation sort of subside a little bit around the world, but it's still very elevated. To what degree do you think that um, all that spending over uh, the, the period of, of uh, a couple of years post-pandemic is related to this uptick in inflation uh, versus, say, other sort of leading stories, say it's you know, largely supply chains or monetary policy? You know, I, I think that... Uh what happened, and, and this is, I think, underappreciated uh, by people, especially, you know, partisans who want to rewrite history, is that there was bipartisan agreement um, that I think intellectually was led by our team, that uh, no one knew what was going to happen, right? So you could look back at COVID and say, oh, I knew it was going to be this. I knew we were going to have 10 waves and stuff like that. But Fauci and Burks were saying in March that we needed 15 days to stop the spread. Uh, and then like Italy went up and went down. And so then they were saying, okay, so we're going to be like Italy. Uh, and let's try to you know, get to the end as fast as possible. So they, and, you know, they basically were saying that the thing was going to go up and it was going to go down and, and it wasn't going to be that, you know, that eventful. Uh, and, and in fact, Fauci, I can remember telling us in the Oval that, uh, that the thing would be gone by summer because it's going to be like the flu season. Nobody gets the flu in the summer. Nobody's going to get COVID in the summer. He had absolutely 100% said that. Uh, in the Oval to us. And and so, but we didn't really know, a lot of uncertainty, and so what we agreed to with the Democrats was, let's, well, we know we're gonna be shut for the next month, or mostly shut, um, so let's do a bill that gets us through the next month, and then let's talk. Like, are we gonna do another month, or are we better? So that we right-size 
the response. And so I think if we go back and count like the sort of interim measures that we had five bills, I think it's by count, but I might be wrong, might be four. Um, and they were timed so that we did something that would like build a bridge to the other side. You heard me say that on TV all the time. And then we got to the other side and then we'd say, okay, so where do we got to build a bridge to now? And, and, and so I think that what happened is that by December, um, you know, after the election, that we had basically about right-sized the response, that we had filled the hole. And you could see that, that because GDP growth was, you know, up uh, like enough so that we had pretty much recovered the 32% that we lost. Inflation hadn't taken off when President Biden came into office. Inflation was very low. But President Biden had a challenge. And, and you know, the fog of war is a nasty thing. And they had a serious fog of war problem in that January that must be, uh, for their economic critics, must be paid attention to. And that is the, that there was like the new variant, cases were skyrocketing. Um, we had more cases, I think, in the January that he took office than we had had yet in a month, or it was close. We could pull up the charts and look. And he basically, at one point I was on TV and somebody said, well, do you think we're gonna need another stimulus? And I said, well, yeah, if you look, at how bad the cases are right now, I guess you know, one could expect that there might be more lockdowns and so on. Forget about whether lockdowns were made sense, but just they're probably going to happen. And so probably you need another stimulus. And President Biden, one of the first things he did when he was in the Oval Office is specifically cite me by name and say Trump's guy, you know, who managed this for him says we need another stimulus. And at that point, I didn't think so. But then what happened was that um, we found out that the vaccines were making it so that it wasn't as big a health issue. It was a milder variant. And it takes Congress a long time to do anything. And so by March, it was clear that what we feared in January wasn't going to happen. And um, moreover, um, it was clear that the bill that they were pursuing was not guided by the build a bridge to the other side, let's go a month or two at a time, but rather it was guided by, like, you got a new president, the Democrats control Congress, and they want to have a Christmas tree, just like everybody of every party does. Like, once they get to do everything... Uh, they want because they control Congress and the White House, then they put in everything they always wanted to do, like the big green subsidies and so on. And, and, and so they passed this thing that was way too big, uh, and, and they um, did so on a partisan basis. And so think about it. Like President Trump passed all these bills with like unanimous consent from Democrats. President Biden comes in promising to heal the country and instantly has a Christmas tree uh, bill that doesn't get a Republican vote. Uh, and it was humongous. It was way too big because the January spike had gone back. In January, he was right to start to devise a stimulus, but in March, they were wrong to pass it. And, and that's what set off inflation because if you, you know, dig a hole that's a shovel full deep and then you put the shovel full back, then the hole's gone. Uh, but, and that's why we were going a little bit at a time because we didn't know. And, and so we didn't know like how much dirt we're gonna have to put back in the hole, but, but they knew that they didn't have to you know, do any, any more shuffling. They were on the other side and they used it as an excuse to you know, inflate uh, the economy. And uh, that, that's one of the big policy errors, I think, of our lifetimes because we're gonna pay the, the price of the higher inflation for a long time. Well, I'm curious, you know, when you think about the whole um, so-called you know, transitory inflation narrative that was being promoted um, by largely the press. Like, I'm, I'm curious, like, the, let's think about this counterfactual world where, say, President Trump was reelected uh, and, you know, was serving in 2021 and experienced the same inflationary uptick that President Biden, that President Biden did in, in May of 2021 and, you know, successively increased. Do you think that uh, the response from the media would have been different had that inflationary uptick had occurred during uh, yeah, well, a hypothetical Trump oh, of course, White yeah. House. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course, it would have been uh, Trump's irresponsible spending destroys America or something would have been, you know. Rather it, than it, the yeah. supply chain, yeah, Mr. the transitory yeah, yeah. supply chains. Yeah, the transitory supply chain thing that, that you know, you got to understand that what happened is, right, that we mailed checks to people that were printed the money was or mailed money to people and the money was printed by the Fed. And so it's like a helicopter drop. And so that kind of thing always causes inflation. And that's why John Cochran and I wrote right at the beginning right as the bill was being passed in, you know, Biden's, you know, first few months in office that inflation was going up by 
I said back then it was going to be probably at least 7% this year based on some math I did. It was sort of right about then, that, that year. And, and it was based on like the following simple analysis. That suppose that I'm an economy and all I do is I make apples. And um, I've got uh, 10 uh, apples a, a year is what I get out of my apple tree. And I, they sell for a dollar a piece. And so I've got $10 and 10 apples. And then, uh, and, and suppose that I don't have time to plant a tree because it takes a while. And then the government says, you know what? To make people better off, we're going to spend $11 on apples this year. Um, but you only have 10 apples. So the supply is constrained because you don't, you can't, like it's, it takes a while for an apple tree to grow. And, but if so, if you spend $11 on apples, then what's going to happen is that the price of the apples is just going to go up. <laughs> and so you're going to have inflation. And so if you're going to have a massive increase in spending, then you have to have some reason to expect that supply will be able to respond. Now, one way supply could respond is if you have like a, a large share of the things you buy is like from the global economy and you're just a little country and so on. And so, you know, you're not necessarily going to get the full, you know, 11 apple effect, we could call it. But, but it was really easy to do the math that would show that the supply couldn't possibly keep up with the demand that they were pushing through because there was so much. And that's where really the, uh, the Cochrane Hassett uh, article about how inflation is about to lift off really came from was like from, you know, simple math that, you know, anybody who took a first semester macro class, and, you know, undergraduate macro class should have been able to do. And um, again, you know, to his credit, Jason Furman did this right at the same time we did and said the same thing that we said and has been like a really like like an honorable former CEA chair who goes out there and sort of says what he thinks the truth is regardless of the partisan impact. And, and I really respect that a lot. But, you know, when you're in the White House and you just pass this bill that's a big mistake, then it puts everybody who's a messenger, you know, into a difficult spot. And um, I think that, you know, probably... A lot of people thought that it was transitory uh, for reasons that I'm not sure I don't understand, but but I don't think people were lying when they said that they thought it was transitory. I think that they did. Um, you know, we know that people at the Fed thought it was transitory at the beginning because they moved way too late. And I don't you think don't they're think being partisan. The media, in part, or certain, there were certain people who were trying to hold water for sort of the Biden administration. Oh, for sure. that That's true, too. Right. Because, because the point is, just again, to go back to your question, if, you know, I had been at CEA and I came out when we saw like inflation at 7% and I said, don't worry, it's transitory, then, you know, there, there would have been, I, and you know, I used to do the White House press conferences, and be, but, but Chairman Hassan, but Chairman Hassan, no, no, wait, wait a minute, oh, me, me, you know, it, that's what would have happened, right? Yeah, how could you say that? It's just, you know, and, and then they would have found a Democrat to say, Andrew, you know, this Nobel Prize winner says it's, you know, it's a permanent negative shock. And that's what, you know, but, but that's democracy. That's what democracy should be. I love it when when um, that happens and you're a Republican in the White House because that's where democracy comes from. Is you know people should say harsh things about you all they want. They should be able to question you as hard as they want, and you should answer them. But we've got an administration that's in denial. The press allows them to be in denial, and a president who's hiding in the basement. You know, and and, and so we don't really have an honest conversation about all these things. But I, I think groupthink matters, though, in the sense that you had this narrative about transitory inflation that was so deeply um, ingrained in that economic policy community at the time, and so much so that I think it influenced forecasting, which I think was certainly no longer based in really any kind of econometric models, but just sort of looking at this, you know, point by point sort of uh, CPI subcomponents of, oh, look at used car prices that are skyrocketing and so forth, and, and, um, and I think that sort of justified this pause and, or uh, not raising interest rates um, on the Fed side of things, ultimately until March of 2022, um, a year really a year later after uh, this sort of uptick in inflation was sort of first showing signs. Um, but by October of like 2021, it was very clear that you know, shelter prices were going up. This was not just a used car story, that there was something mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't transitory. And, and now there's still you know, debates over to what degree you know, spending versus you know, supply chains were responsible. And, and often you know, there isn't a monocausal reason. But um, it's interesting how strongly people like to um, deny any kind of um, 
influence from from Spain at all. It's it's very interesting. Speaking of spending and, and debt, I want to get uh, your take here on the debt limit. There's currently a big debt limit debate in D.C. right now um, about whether or not there should be a clean debt limit increase. That is, um, the debt limit uh, be increased without any other um, considerations or, or any, anything else um, to change the you know, future path of debt. Uh, these debt limit uh, ceilings have you know, been sort of part of um, part of law for quite some time. Typically, every time we, we near them, they get raised. Um, in 10 years ago, there was pretty significant debate around uh, a similar debt, uh, uh, ceiling, uh, debt limit ceiling standoff um, that resulted in the S&P downgrading U.S. debt. Some many argued that it wasn't um, uh, a, a really a justified thing, but they did it, and it, I remember it caused a, a massive um, market sell-off uh, in, in U.S. equities uh, at the time, and, and it actually caused U.S. Treasury to rally, which is somewhat counterintuitive, uh, given that uh, the Assyrian uh, Poor's downgraded U.S. debt. But I'm curious, we're in this new sort of debt uh, limit uh, ceiling standoff, and um, CDS prices on U.S. debt are, are higher than what they were mm -hmm. even 10 years ago, so the, the probability of what the market thinks about the probability of there actually being some form of default is actually higher than it was 10 years ago. Now, you're not in favor of a clean debt limit raise. Um, unlike some other uh, Republican economists who say, uh, yeah, this is wrong, there should be a clean uh, debt limit raise, just like the ones prior to it. I'm curious um, if you could speak to your position on uh, sure. how we should approach the debt limit. Yeah, and, and at first you have to understand that the debt limit, it goes actually back uh, to the 19-teens, uh, it, it used to be, by the way, going back all the way to the Revolutionary War, that every time we borrowed, then we had to say it was for a specific project, and that had to be approved by Congress. And so we could say, we're going to borrow money to build a bridge. And then we borrow some money to build a bridge, and then Congress would have the build the Borrow Money to Build a Bridge Act. Uh, and then what happened is in the 19-teens, they decided this is getting out of control, uh, and so let's just have a debt limit that sort of applies to everything. And you know, subsequently, the debt limit has had to be increased a whole n bunch of times, and, times. and 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 you uh, have a history of debt limit political negotiations, and um, there are clean debt limit increases and dirty debt limit increases, and a clean increase is one where it's only the debt limit, and a dirty is one where it includes policy uh, compromises. And the majority of, of debt limit increases in U.S. history have been dirty. Um, that uh, we There's a Congressional Research uh, Service study on the history of these, which I commend to people. If you Google it, you'll find it right away. That shows, you know, basically what happened each time. And if you look at it, you know, the, the majority of uh, debt limit increases that passed with a Democratic Congress and a Democrat in the White House were dirty. Um, President Biden, when he was in the Senate, voted four times for debt limit increases that were tied to spending cuts. Uh, there was one dirty bill only that he voted against, and he gave a floor speech explaining that he was voting against it because the debt limit increase wasn't tied to bigger spending cuts. Uh, and so President Biden's position right now that we shouldn't negotiate, we shouldn't include other policies, is sort of ignoring a long history of this being basically a vehicle by which policy compromises are made. And so the debt limit has on net been a really good thing because it's helped constrain the growth of government and introduced good policies like the cigarette tax came in a debt limit increase. And, and, and so uh, the position that you should have a clean one is really, if you think about it, what the debt limit does is it gives the minority par party a little power. Because if you don't pass it, it doesn't go up and that's a really bad thing. You, you know, you gotta pass it or you're in default. And so the minority party gets a little bit of power. Uh, and so what's happening right now is you got all these Nobel Prize guys and surprisingly, again, like people at AEI saying you should have a clean debt limit. But the clean debt limit position is really that, okay, so the Republicans have a little bit of power. They should give it up for free, even though the Democrats would never do that. And so it's basically like, I don't want Republicans to have a say in what policy this is. So it's astonishing to me that that's like the message of the American Enterprise Institute that I used to love so dearly. But that's their message. Uh, but it ignores history, but it also sort of blames Republicans if something goes wrong, which is sort of illiterate uh, economically in the sense that the game itself is fully symmetric. 
And so you've got the things you want, say, if you're Biden White House, I got the things I want if I'm Mr. McCarthy. Uh, if we don't agree to something, then it's terrible for financial markets, you know, and, and uh, but if we don't agree, then it's not McCarthy's fault. It's not Biden's fault. It's both of their fault because they didn't agree. They didn't come up with something. And so, so the idea that it's McCarthy's fault if you default presumes that the virtuous thing to do is to pass a debt limit with no other policy changes. But the majority of the time, you know, Congress has attached policy changes to it. And moreover, the policy changes that have been attached to debt limit increases have been virtuous. Um, and, and, and so I think that it, it's just uh, the, the conversation, I understand politicians posturing, you got to like allow for the fact that there's going to be extreme positions taken because they're negotiating and they're going to come to a deal at the last minute. That's what always happens. Uh, but the idea that it's irresponsible or demented to, to negotiate over the debt limit and to ask for policy changes to come with it is just not defensible. Uh, and yet it's the position of most of uh, the media and many third think tank inside Washington people uh, who basically don't want Republicans to have any power at all, apparently. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for these amazing thoughts on so many topics from tax policy to the COVID-19 stimulus response, the debt limit. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Today, our guest was Kevin Hassett a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. This is the Capitalism and Freedom, the 21st Century Podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Baby, you give me free-